Good morning. Our first reading is in Genesis chapter 41, verses 38 to 43, which is on page 35 in the Bibles we provide. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this, in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and as wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot. And they called out before him, Bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. The word of our Lord. Our second reading is in Matthew chapter 25, verses 14 to 30, which is on page 830 in the Bibles we provide. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also who had the two talents came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received the one talent came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man reaping where you did not sow, and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sowed, and gathered where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him, and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The Gospel of Christ. We come in our study of 1 Corinthians to the fourth chapter. Verses 1 through 5, you'll find this on page 953 of our Bibles. We had in our first two lessons pictures of stewardship. Joseph being placed over all of Egypt, except for the throne itself. 
And then Jesus' parable of the three servants made stewards entrusted with their master's wealth and told to multiply it. And now we come in our study to Paul's description of stewardship. This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. The word of the Lord. I suspect that every one of us has had some version of this dream. We are back in school we discover that there is an examination about to be given, which we must take in a course that we had no idea we were signed up for, and our graduation depends on our passing that exam. I continued after my school years to have that insecurity dream for some years, Uh, into my work life when, at last, it morphed into a more appropriate dream, which now goes like this. It's Sunday morning. (laughs) I'm expected to preach. I cannot, for the life of me, figure out why I've prepared no sermon. I'm in my study. I can't find my suit coat. My Bible is misplaced. And as I run around hearing West leading worship, knowing that he's wondering where in the world I am, why I haven't shown up. Uh, Things just spin out of control. It turns into a Kafka-esque comedy of errors. And I can't find my, you just can't get there from here. And so when at last I worked my way through the maze and stumbled down here putting on my coat, the last person is leaving the sanctuary in disgust. These kinds of insecurity dreams that virtually everyone reports having from time to time arise, I think, from a deep human insecurity about what it is that's expected of us and whether or not we're up to the task. Do I even know what my life is really about? What is required of me? And how, what has been entrusted to me, what is expected of me, and, and who ultimately tells me. Paul is addressing a group of Christians who have it all wrong. They have been judging one another. They have been judging their leaders, Paul, Apollos, Cephas. They've been dividing into groups and quarreling and thinking well of themselves, once again, for all of the wrong reasons. And Paul has been calling them back to the gospel, back to Christ, back to the cross, which is, as Paul so eloquently taught in earlier, uh, earlier in the letter, folly to the wise of the world and weakness 
to the strong of the world, but to those of us who are being saved, it is the wisdom and power of God. And then he called us to recognize our union with Christ, that because we are in Christ, we should never want to define ourselves or uh, identify ourselves with mere teachers or groups of people. That's not, he says, your identity. That's not who you are. You are in Christ. And he ended so eloquently by saying, all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours, for you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. But simply knowing that we are in Christ is not enough for us to understand the implications. And so Paul in chapter 4 now begins to turn to what that should look like day by day in the lives of God's people. And in doing so, he is answering four questions. First of all, how should I regard myself? How should we regard one another? Secondly, what has been entrusted to us? Thirdly, what is expected of us? And finally, who does the evaluation? Who's going who's to tell us whether we got it right? Who's the judge? He begins by telling us how we should regard one another, and he uses that very language. He says, this is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ, stewards. Now, the Corinthians on reading that would have every reason to immediately go, whoa, wait a minute. You just finished saying that all things are ours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or life or death, the present, the future. All things are ours, for we are Christ's and Christ is God's. And now you turn around and tell us we're just a bunch of servants serving a master. What happened? Well, to hear and understand it, they and we must remember first the words of our Lord Jesus, found in Matthew chapter 20. When Jesus said to his disciples who were arguing over which of them would be greatest, the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over you, but it's not to be that way with you. The one who would lead, the one who would be first, must be willing to be the servant of all, to make himself even a slave, just as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And as we often quote, Paul, in those familiar words from Philippians 2, summarizes that truth by calling on the Christians. And Paul is writing from prison and yet writing probably his most joyful letter. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to grasp, but emptied himself and took the form of a servant. Being found, born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Therefore God highly exalted him and gave him the name above every name. In other words, Yes, we are children of God, but we need to understand that like our elder brother, these are years entrusted to us to learn what it means to serve.
But he has a particular kind of service in mind. He doesn't simply say, this is how one should regard us as servants. He says, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ, stewards. Now, a steward might live in a big house, wear nice clothes, drive a fancy chariot, handle all kinds of money, be in a position of tremendous power over a great estate, or in Joseph's case, over the greatest nation of his day. But the one thing the steward must remember is this. Whether over much or over little, whether given five talents or given one, the steward must remember that nothing he has, nothing he handles, is his. It belongs to his master. It is to be invested for his master. It is to be tended for his master. And that's the first thing Paul tells us. We cannot understand the nature of our life here as God's children without realizing that we are children to whom he has given and he expects stewardship of us. Which brings us to our second question. If I'm a steward, what has been entrusted to me? And he tells us, you are entrusted with the mysteries of God. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. You may say, thanks a lot, that helps. Now I know. The mysteries of God, what in the world is that? Well, Paul in chapter 2 already said to the mature, we teach God's secret, God's hidden wisdom, and those who have the Spirit are taught by the Spirit to understand. But as we unpacked that, we saw that it was actually the message of the cross, that that seems so foolish and weak to the world, but is the very saving power of God, God's taking human flesh, entering into death, kicking down its doors from the inside out, leading captivity captive. And that great mystery revealed would have resonated in the minds of those first readers in the terms that the culture knew it. Because one of the greatest figures still in that day was one from just a few centuries earlier, uh, Alexander the Great. And Alexander the Great famously would gather his generals around him and explain the plan of battle, explain how they would have a great victory. And those sessions were called Mysterium, the mystery. It was the mystery being revealed. I'm now going to tell you what the plan is. And that, I believe, is how Paul uses it in his letters so that he says, God has revealed this mystery and entrusted to you. This great mystery, I think last week we cited Ephesians chapter 1, where he states it this way and says, Now, in the fullness of time, God has made known his plan, and this is it. His plan is to unite all things in heaven and on earth, all things in this cosmos that have been shattered apart, broken by our sin. God wants to bring it all back together again in Christ. That's the mystery entrusted to us. It is the life-changing, 
culture-transforming, cosmos-renewing message of God's grace in Jesus Christ. And that, brothers and sisters, is why for the past couple weeks I've kept saying we dare not be part of the shattering of the nation. We dare not be part of the, the cruel and, uh, how can I say this uh, in a way that won't get me fired, that, that part of the culture wars where people don't talk nicely. <laughs> okay. Um, the, just the, the vileness of so much of the expression of what should be truth beautifully, compellingly expressed. Instead, is being spewed. I'll be honest with you, I can't tell you how pained I've been seeing Christian leaders stand up this weekend and try to make excuses. Some of them, not all, but some of them, for the language revealed by one of the candidates. Instead of in love, doing what the press has done, which is to call to account. And both candidates having things revealed this weekend that they had tried to keep hidden. And we're to be those who somehow in the midst of the mess are saying we want God's healing, reconciling power to be at work. No matter what happens in our gut, we need to go against that and say, God in his mercy has redeemed me. God, how can I work for something redemptive within my little sphere, something that brings back together what sin and selfishness and ugliness has shattered? How can I work to bring things back? Because that's the mystery that's been revealed that he aims in Christ to unite all things. And that requires speaking truth, even when it hurts. But speaking truth in love, whatever it costs. Well, if we've been entrusted with this great mystery that flows from the cross of God's aim, to unite what sin has broken. What's expected of us? My little life, my little sphere, what in the world can I do? What, what's expected? What does success look like? And remarkably, wonderfully, Paul reminds us that the Bible never talks about success. Success is an American God. It probably was a God in the well, I'm sure it was a God in the Roman world. Paul says it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. Faithfulness. That's what's required of us. Sometimes it will look for all the world like abject failure. Other times it may just look like a quiet life being lived in a corner. Other times it may look like great success. But what is required of stewards is faithfulness. I spent this last week out in the redwood forest uh, of California with a group of Chinese business leaders. 
who are Christians and are wanting to grow in their own faith and understanding of the things of God and their own support of global mission. And I can tell you, they're looking at us and going, what's going on? What, what is happening to your country? But they also say, we wish, <laughs> we wish that we had your freedom. We wish that we could build our churches and sing God's praises and, you know, without registering with the government. And I thought again about them as I was thinking about this passage. Those of us who grew up in the 1950s or were around then may remember if we were in Christian circles all the hand-wringing that used to go on. I'd hear it probably every few years at the mission conferences in the church where I grew up. People talking about the great work of folk like uh, Hudson Taylor and how the church in China had had such a great start, but now it had been destroyed by the communists. It was gone. There was nothing left. And then what happens? As China opens, we discover that under the harshest oppression, the church in China had grown as it has grown nowhere else in any other culture at any other time. Why? What is required is faithfulness. And those believers under pressure, under threat, without all the things we think we need to have a church, simply gossiped the good news to one another, gathered together in homes, around tables, remembered Christ's death, sang his praises, taught his truth, discipled deeply, sometimes at the cost of their freedom, sometimes at the cost of their lives, but the church just kept growing. Why? Because they didn't have a vision of success. They knew that they'd simply been called to be faithful. And Paul, in the second half of his letters, basically always gives a description of faithfulness to the call. That's what he's doing. And it amounts basically to this. Living out God's law, rightly understood. Loving God, loving each other. What does it look like? Paul says, this is it. This is what it looks like to love well, to love God, and to love others, even those who would seek to be your enemies. One of my favorite concise statements of the Christian life actually comes in the first chapter of his first letter to Timothy. I think it's, chap I think it's verse 5 of chapter 1 where Paul writes, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart, a clear conscience, and a sincere faith. Isn't that beautiful? That's it. There it is. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart, a clear conscience, and a sincere faith. You say, purity of heart, how do I get that? Kierkegaard hit it right. The title of one of his works was this. Purity of heart is to will one thing. We say that something in a laboratory is impure if other things have gotten in and mixed with it. And a heart that's not pure is one that, that, yes, wants the Lord, wants his kingdom, wants his righteousness, 
It's one of many mutually exclusive things that that heart wants. What's the source of so much of our trouble? It's that we want things that are mutually exclusive. They contradict each other. You want a loving, faithful spouse who's always there for you, always encouraging, always ready to build you up, always ready to express love. And you also want every attractive person you meet. Of course, you know, those don't go together. You want people to love you and want to be around you and and just enjoy working with you. And you want them to do exactly what you tell them and not question you. I mean, this is how we are. Purity of heart is to will one thing. Love that issues from a pure heart desiring to love God and to love others well. From a clear conscience, where do we get that? Only through Christ. A sincere faith. Remember in the English, that wonderful uh, although it's sometimes disputed, I think it's actually accurate for the etymology of that word. Uh, Sincere uh, is without wax. And when someone used to buy a statue in the ancient world, they'd ship it, and the guy on receiving it would realize the nose had been knocked off. He'd say, well, I can't sell it like this. So he'd get a sculptor to come in and with wax do the nose, he'd receive payment, he'd ship it off again to the person who bought it. They'd put it in their garden, they'd invite their friends, they'd just be toasting the new statuary as the sun was beating down and the nose begins to melt off. Sincere is without wax. It's the real deal. Sincere faith. You really believe what you say you believe. That was what caught Secretary Clinton this week. In her case, it was finally getting to look at those transcripts of some of the Wall Street talks where she talks about public positions and private positions. Different. And the nose begins to melt. So, for us, it's a call to faithfulness. And I don't know about you, but uh, there are times when Uh, when I think, Lord, take me home tonight, I think I had probably the best day I'm going to have, by grace. It's not going to get better than this. Other other times when I go to bed and say, please, Lord, don't let me die in my sleep. I can't go to you like this. Um, And that, of course, is to look at it all wrongly. It's always in Christ, which brings us to the final question. If I should be regarded as a steward, and I should regard you that way. If what has been entrusted to us is God's mystery revealed, his aim to unite all things in Christ flowing from the cross and the victory. If what is required is faithfulness, who's the judge? Of course we know, but we don't live as if we know. We're always judging, aren't we? I'm telling you, I've never found it so hard as during this election, not to set myself up as the judge of the living and the dead. Instead of letting 
just this weekend, the revelations, be a picture to me of what Paul says here. He says the day is coming when all of our secrets are going to be revealed, not just people running for president. The tapes are going to come out. All the things we thought were forgotten that we'd forgotten. Listen to how Paul says it, beginning with verse 3. With me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Could I get an amen? (laughs) I mean, we read that and we say, what hope have we? How can we possibly live in hope? We judge one another without knowing the context, without knowing what's going on. I'm not saying that that Paul in another place says there is a need to judge to know who's the real thing and who isn't. Within the family of faith, you don't just say, oh, make him an elder because he's important in town and maybe there's a reason he did all that other stuff that was in the newspaper. No, I mean, there's a call for discernment and good sense. But this judgment where we look and decide whether a person deserves to be blessed or not, Nobody deserves it. God offers it to all. And so Paul says, doesn't matter how you judge me. See, they were doing that. They were judging him. Those who said, I'm not of Paul. I'm of Apollos or I'm of Cephas. Who wants Paul? He said, it doesn't matter how you judge me because I can fool you or you can be wrong. I always loved that famous story. I think it was Rousseau and Voltaire where someone asked, you know, the great rivals, Uh, of their day in French thinking and literature, and someone asked Rousseau what he thought of Voltaire, and he said some very gracious things, and, you know, he's a brilliant guy, wonderful writer, and they said, well, Voltaire says you're a romantic fool. And Rousseau said, we could both be wrong. Uh, And that's what Paul is saying, you know. (laughs) We don't know. And so we don't, he says, even know enough really to evaluate ourselves. We can be wrong about that. I can think, this has been a good day. God's lucky to have me on board. And I just don't realize the people I've stepped on. I can have other days where I feel absolutely horrible and defeated, but it's because I was in the battle trying so hard to wage that war against the desire not to serve Christ. So Paul says, I don't waste time even judging myself. I'll await the one who is coming. And he's going to look at things totally different. Christians, even Christian leaders, perhaps especially very visible Christian leaders, tend to evaluate things according to the stuff that you can put in an obituary or in an eloquent eulogy. That's the worth of your life, all those things you did, all the people who think you're wonderful. And Paul says, no, none of that matters. That's success. And he's told us earlier in chapter 2, the only foundation you can lay in this building is Jesus Christ. 
Be careful how you build on it. Some build with precious things, others with wood, hay, and stubble. If it's not worth building, God will burn it away in this day when it comes, though you are saved as one coming through fire. But what a horror to look and see year after year of one's life wasted. The resources entrusted to us for the sake of the kingdom wasted on just our own passing pleasures. If we left it there, it would be pretty depressing. But thank God Paul ends this section with a word of tremendous encouragement. And it's that final verse. He says at the end of verse 5, then each one will receive his commendation from God. He doesn't say, then each one will receive his condemnation from God. That's what we deserve. But you see, Christ on the cross took our condemnation. He bore our brokenness and rebellion and our sin and put it to death. And he said here, now take my life and live it well. Live it faithfully. Take this part, these gifts I've given, these opportunities, these people. I'll never require of you what I haven't given to you. But what I entrust to you, I want you to present back, having grown, having flourished, having blossomed. And we should all Seek like the, the one with the five talents and the two talents. One day to hear our master say, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a little. Now that life is really beginning, I'm going to put you over much. Enter into your master's joy. That's the invitation. Let's not miss who we really are and what has been given to us.